turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to spend our fourth and, and final Sunday in Matthew's genealogy during this Advent season. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. And, and we did send out something of a, a disclaimer in our weekly newsletter this past week. I just wanted to reiterate uh, that this morning's sermon will touch on some uh, difficult, more mature themes. I'm going to do my best to be mindful of uh, the, the little ones in this room. I'm also seeking to be uh, true and clear about the, the message of the scriptures and Matthew's genealogy here and the stories involved therein. I wanted to give you a heads up uh, as well. Uh, with that said, <clears throat> if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, <clears throat> looking at Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Uh, this upcoming Friday in our Eve of the Eve service, we'll continue on to Matthew 1, 18 through 26, I believe, yeah, and um, 25, rather, and um, we'll uh, spend uh, Christmas morning, Sunday morning, uh, at our service on Christmas morning in Matthew 1, 18 through 25 as well. Uh, but this morning, we're finishing up our time in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, which Matthew wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It reads as such, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab. And Menadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Nasaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your spirit so that we might be encouraged and edified this morning, so that Christ might be exalted in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, Glenn Scrivener tells the story of how in 1787, his ancestor, Ann Forbes, stole 10 yards of printed cotton from a London market. In other words, he, he says she was a convict. History records that in consequence for her crime, she sailed on the first fleet from Portsmouth to Botany Bay. She was, she was exiled. Scrivener writes that this is how he came to be Australian. He says, without Ann Forbes and without her crime, I would not be the person I am today. Initially, he says, Ann was sentenced to death for her crimes, and yet good sense prevailed. He says it, it, it dawned on the authorities that colonizing Australia might require some females, and so banking on Anne's breeding potential, they commuted her sentence to seven years transportation. And in Australia, she produced 10 children that they know of. She in turn produced 150 grandkids, which of course led to the eventual birth of Glenn himself. This is not lost on him as you read the, the book that he wrote, 321. He says that at the time, some might have considered Anne's exile to Australia to be a fate worse than death, but on this side of it, he of course doesn't view it that way at all. He, he writes in his book that every now and again, I think about Anne's experience. He says it's not just a history lesson, it's personal. The day she was spared from execution, my life was saved. The lives of 6,000 descendants depended on that one decision. He concludes, I realize this is an odd way to think about it, but it's true. Scrivener's story speaks to something many of us feel to be true. And in some several ways, our family trees and histories are, are inextricably connected to the, the people that we are Today, this is why, partly why so many people want to know something of their family trees. This is why genealogy companies worth billions like Ancestry.com and others draw millions of people every year who utilize their services to learn something of the people they've come from, something of, of the stories of their family's past, something of their family tree. So many of us want to know these things because we feel that in some way they'll tell us something about ourselves. Our family trees, they help to explain us somehow. We've been seeing in the season of Advent how this family tree of Jesus is explaining to us something of who he is. We've seen how the fact that he's the son of Abraham reveals that he's, he's come to fulfill all of God's promises to Abraham. He's come to bring Abraham's blessing to this earth and to all the peoples in it. We've seen how the fact that Jesus is the son of David reveals that he's come to be the long-promised king who will usher in eternal shalom and reign over all nations and all the cosmos forevermore. And last week, we saw how Jesus is the one who's come to bring us back from exile, to make us at home in himself again, and, and eventually to make this broken, fallen creation new again so that our home is found within it in his presence. We've looked at how these three subjects, we've looked at these three subjects because they're, they're, we've seen how their headings or hinges in this genealogy here in Matthew 1. The entire genealogy is organized around these two men and this event. But now on our final Sunday, 
in Matthew's genealogy here, we're going to go back through this genealogy and just try to comb through it a bit and simply look at some of the oddities here, the, uh, the anomalies, the abnormalities. You've, you've probably noticed each week that we've been reading through this genealogy. You can almost get into something of a rhythm in reading it. You know, so-and-so is the father of such-and-such, and such-and-such such was the father of who's McCallit, and who's McCallit was the father of old Doohickey and all the rest of it. There's, there's something of an established pattern and rhythm to it all, which is, an occasion, which is occasionally interrupted the mention of a woman. It's almost like there's an extra beat added to a song. Or it's, it's almost like you're, you're driving along and you just, you know, you're on the highway and then you randomly run over a speed bump, as it were. It's, you kind of go, that's, that's odd. What, what just happened there? And it is odd. It's, it's odd for one because it was not particularly normal for genealogies in Matthew's day to mention the names of women. Now, family trees in those days were typically viewed patrilineally, they, they trace the line of the fathers to the child born, and, and at times, if, if, if there was a particularly notable woman, a, a woman of great achievement or notoriety, a genealogy might mention her name, and you might expect in this genealogy, if, if the women name were those like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, or Leah, the, the wife of Jacob, however, What's even more odd than the fact that women are named in this genealogy is the particular women named. Because the particular women named involve complicated, sometimes scandalous stories. Some of the women named here are women of ill repute. Some of the women named are those who experience such suffering and oppression actually at the hands of the men named next to them. All of the women in this list, save Mary, are outsiders and Gentiles. And yet, as such, Matthew saw fit to include them in the family tree of Jesus here, and he did it because he wants to show us something important about who Jesus is and why he's come. The presence of these women in the family tree of Jesus helps to explain to us something of who he is and why he's come, particularly Matthew's showing us here that Jesus came from sinners, sufferers, and Gentiles for sinners, sufferers, and Gentiles. Matthew's showing us something of the kind of people Jesus came from to show us something of the kind of people he came for. And that's what we're looking at this morning. See, first, how Jesus came to redeem sinners. Jesus came to redeem sinners. As you're reading along in this genealogy, the first kind of speed bump that we encounter here is the first extra beat in this otherwise rhythmic pattern is in verse 3, where you find the name Tamar, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerubbabel, Tamar. You can find the story involving Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. I do my best to make a, a scandalous, shocking story short here. It begins with Judah leaving his people and going to this Canaanite Gentile area, and there he, he ends up generating two boys with a Canaanite woman. Both of these boys grew up to be uh, utterly wicked men. When the first of the boys grew up, he married Tamar. This is where Tamar comes in the story, and, and she marries Judah's firstborn here. And, and because of his great wickedness, this firstborn was actually put to an early death. When he died, 
His younger brother took Tamar to be his wife. And then like his older brother, he died as well. Now, now at that point, Judah had other sons, but they weren't grown yet. And so Judah told Tamar, go back to your father's house, live as a widow there. And he promised her that when his young boys were older, he, he wouldn't leave her as a widow. He wouldn't leave her so exploited and, and exposed to the danger of widowhood. One of them would marry her so that she could be taken care of and have children and a family. And yet it seems that Judah didn't ever actually intend to keep his word. He went back home, seemed to have forgotten all about Tamar, his promise to her. And when his boys grew older, he still left Tamar as a widow in her father's house. And so Tamar, losing patience and hope, devised a plan. Knowing her father-in-law's proclivities, she donned a veil and disguised herself as a prostitute, and she went to this area she knew he would be in one day, and as she expected, Judah came to visit her, completely unaware as to who she actually was because of the veil. As it so happened, she came to be pregnant by this encounter with the twins, Era, and the Lord's far-off grandfather, Perez. Of course, there's, there's a sense in which when you read the story, if you know something of, as to how ancient Near Eastern cultures worked back then, you, you know that Tamar was put in a very hard position. Judah did not do right by her. She was put between a rock and a hard place, and yet we still can't help but see how Tamar's behavior was marked by deceit and sexual immorality. She was put in a hard place, but she did not act righteously when in that hard place. Of course, that's to say nothing of Judah's behavior. The news of Tamar's pregnancy initially came to Judah. He actually called for her death. He was so angry. He thought she did wrong by his boys and his family name. However, when he came to find out that he himself was the father, he rightfully confessed in Genesis 38, 26, she, Tamar, is more righteous than I am. Judah himself, the far-off grandfather of David, and more importantly of the Christ, was a liar, a deviant, an adulterer. We find out later he's a kidnapper. And it's through these two broken, sinful people, and through this scandalous, shocking event that the line of the Christ continues, showing us that Jesus came from deeply flawed, sinful people like Judah and Tamar. That's not the only name that shows us this reality. As you keep reading, the next far-off grandmother of Jesus mentioned is Rahab. In verse 5, we find that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. You can find this story in Joshua chapters 2 to 6. And, and interestingly, you, you won't find Scripture ever speaking negatively of Rahab or her character at any point, but she's actually portrayed as a woman of faith and repentance, of, of allegiance to God and His people, and she was. But before what we can consider to be her conversion in Joshua 2, the reality is that Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. She was a woman of faith and repentance who was used by God to help Israel overtake the city. Her allegiance from that point on belonged to Yahweh and his people. But Rahab is a woman with a past. She's a woman of ill repute. She was a prostitute. And, and, and why would Matthew include such a woman in this genealogy, not to show us that there's similar hope for all of us with a past. If not to show us that Jesus came for the likes of Rahab to bring redemption and change and hope to those who have utterly blown it. 
And we've said nothing of the great sins of many of the other people on this list. We could spend all day discussing the sinfulness and brokenness of all the people here. Abraham, the father of our faith, is also one who, whom Genesis portrays as a lying coward at times. He lied about being married to Sarah and put his own safety above his wife's well-being when push came to shove. Jacob, his grandson, was a, a lying cheat. We've seen Judah, David, as we'll see in a few moments, a sexual abuser and murderer. Solomon was a sex-crazed idolater, and that's just a few names. Read Kings and Chronicles to see many of the people on this list commit grievous sins of idolatry, injustice, adultery, murder, deceit, pride, prejudice. This family tree is filled with broken, sinful people with a past. And yet the grave and great sins of those among this family tree of Jesus is reason for us to have great hope because it shows us that Jesus is not ashamed to identify with the kinds of people on this list. He's not ashamed to call sinners his family, both before his arrival and, as Hebrews shows us, after his arrival as well. Matthew 1 shows us that if there's room for these kinds of broken people in the family of Jesus, there's room for us. If Jesus was not ashamed to come from these kinds of people, he must likewise not be ashamed to have come for these kinds of people. The messed up family tree of Jesus shows us that sinners like this are welcome into his family. Nancy Guthrie writes of this genealogy in her book saying that Jesus came from a long line of outsiders, outlaws, scoundrels, sinners. When he entered into the world, he entered into the messiness of this human family, even in his own family. And in fact, he was the only member of this family who never brought shame upon the family. Instead, he took upon himself the shame of every person in this family tree. We can go further and say and celebrate this morning and he's taken on the shame of all those who would come to trust in him and be added to his family today. Friends, Matthew 1 here vividly displays for us this reality which Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save people like Tamar and Rahab, like Abraham and Jacob, like David and Solomon, like you and like me. I'm sure that there's some of you present here this morning, you feel so keenly that you are disqualified from truly belonging to Jesus and his family. There's some of you here this morning that, for whom the, the sins of your past loom so large in your mind. There are some of you here this morning that are, are haunted by the sins of your past. There are some of you here today who are burdened for, with guilt for for besetting sins you're fighting against to this day. And you wonder if there's any real hope for forgiveness, for redemption, for freedom from guilt, for any hope of change. And the good news of this genealogy is that there's a place for you in the family of Jesus. There's freedom from guilt in the person of Jesus. There is true and lasting forgiveness in the work of Jesus, forgiveness where it truly matters, from the throne room of heaven, there's true and lasting change to be found in Jesus. 
Because unlike anyone who ever belonged to this family tree before or after, he didn't bring shame upon his family. He came as the spotless lamb of God, 1 Peter 1.19 shows us. He came as one innocent without sin or imperfection in any way. And, and yet as the sinless one, as the spotless one, as the guiltless one, he went to the cross so that we sinners might be declared spotless and guiltless ourselves. So that our shame might be taken away and our sin atoned for. So that we might be added to his family forever. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. You see, the, the, the spotless Son of God came to be declared a sinner on the cross so that we sinners might be declared to be spotless sons of God. And what's more is that he rose again on the third day after his death so that the very power of the living God might break into this world and into our small lives, changing and transforming us like he did Rahab so long ago. This is, this is a message of good news for broken and worn down sinners. For parents who, who just can't seem to stop yelling at their children. And, and for children who just can't seem to get their act together. For porn addicts and adulterers. For chronic liars and substance abusers, for the selfish and greedy, for murderers and idolaters, Jesus has come to be the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners, to give forgiveness and real hope for change, to give us redemption. Sinners like us, Matthew's genealogy shows us, are given a full and warm welcome into the family of God as long as it's not too far beneath us to be named amongst such a band of sinners and scoundrels, the people on this list and like the people in this room, so long as it's not too far beneath you, there's a place for you. Through this genealogy, God says, come, you're welcome here. But then this genealogy and, and specifically the ladies mentioned in it show us not just that Jesus came to redeem sinners, but also that he came to relieve sufferers came to relieve sufferers. The, 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 the name of our dear sister Ruth here reveals this. Find her right after Rahab there in verse 5 where it says, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Of course, Ruth was a sinner like all of us. We could put her name in the previous point, the same as anyone in this family tree. However, the, the scriptures do portray her as, as a virtuous woman. Really, they, they show her as the paradigmatic virtuous woman. And as such, she, she suffered much in her life. Just a few years ago, we spent four Sundays in Advent looking at the book of Ruth, Sunday in each chapter. And, and what we found, particularly in Ruth chapter 1, is that Ruth faced the harsh reality of how terribly fallen this world is. Ruth, of course, was not a Jewish woman, but a Moabite. She was an outsider, a Gentile member of one of the nations, not of the people of God, not by ethnicity anyways, but, but due to this terrible famine in the land, this Jewish family left Israel to sojourn to Moab in search for food. The husband, father was Elimelech, the wife and mother was Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and, and they ended up settling in Moab for a time where, where the two sons married Moabite ladies, Ruth being one, Orpah being the other. 
Well, eventually the famine was so bad, even in Moab, that Elimelech died. And then to make matters worse, the two sons died. And Ruth and Naomi and Orpah were widowed, struggling through this famine without husband or son, having lost their, their husbands, their means of provision, any hope of continuing the family line. And eventually, by God's grace, Naomi and Ruth together headed back to the land and dwelled there among God's people again. And yet even there, it seemed that they were continually neglected and not brought into the, into the way of things as they should have been. And however, because of a righteous man named Boaz, the story ends with something of a resolution as, as Boaz steps in as a, as a kinsman redeemer and he marries Ruth and continues the family line with Obed. And if you'll recall, Boaz is really something of a type of Christ, Ruth and Boaz's far-off grandson. The one who would come to not just bring something of a resolution to the suffering of God's people, but to bring the resolution to right all wrongs and reverse all suffering, to bring final and full resolution and shalom to the lives of God's suffering people. As we read on in this genealogy, we see another woman mentioned. In fact, she's not actually named. Her husband is. See, in verse 6, that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah. Matthew could have just said Bathsheba. That's her name. But in calling her the wife of Uriah, it seems in part Matthew is highlighting something of the, the, the terrible situation behind the birth of Solomon. A situation that involved much suffering and sorrow in the heart of poor Bathsheba. Some of you might be wondering why I'm speaking of Bathsheba here under the category of sufferer and not sinner. Just like Ruth, I'm sure she was a sinner, like Tamar and Rahab and everyone. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, is deserving of his condemnation outside of Christ. That's true of Bathsheba, the same it's true of anyone. Yet, yet the story referenced in this genealogy, the stories it's told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 involving David and Bathsheba, doesn't actually showcase her sin as it does David's. In fact, the story speaks exclusively of David's sin and lays no blame at the feet of Bathsheba. In fact, it actually portrays her as being innocent. You see this in 2 Samuel 12 when the, Nathan, when the, the prophet Nathan rebuked David for his sinful actions in 2 Samuel 12. He, he comes to David with a kind of prophetic parable. And in this prophetic parable... Bathsheba is portrayed as this innocent victim. She's portrayed as a little lamb. The character in this parable that corresponds to Bathsheba is a little lamb, a creature typically used in the Bible to display innocence and purity. Bathsheba in this parable is displayed as an innocent lamb who's been stolen and taken against its will. I know many people here speak of, of the depravity of both David's and Bathsheba's sin in the stories, if they were both equally responsible for the grave and terrible things done therein. But, but if you know the story, you know that, that when it all took place, David was supposed to be out in battle, but he wasn't. He was actually at home, and while at home one day, he was walking on his roof. And on his roof there, he saw Bathsheba across the way in the city, bathing on her roof. 
And sometimes people say, well, she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. But that probably wasn't all that much of an abnormal thing at the time. And, and unlike David, she was probably doing exactly what she should have been doing. She was probably doing her ritual purification as prescribed in Leviticus 19. But when David noticed her doing this, he, he lusted after her and he devised an evil plan in his heart. And then he put this plan into action. David sent for Bathsheba to come and to lie with him. And, and here's the reality. If you were a woman alone in your house in the 11th century BC in that culture, and the king, the sovereign, the monarch of Israel sins for you to come to him, I'm not sure you have much of a choice in the matter. This doesn't seem to be much of a mutual affair as much as it is an abuse of power on the part of David and a grave injustice against Bathsheba. To make matters worse, after this, to cover up his sins, David organizes a plan to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle, Uriah killed, which was a plot that no way involved Bathsheba. Bathsheba doesn't sound, she sounds more like an innocent sufferer here than she does a willing participant. It doesn't sound like we should be viewing Bathsheba as a guilty party here. We should be viewing her with sympathy and compassion. She's been sinned against David gravely in, in, in at least two ways, in the sexual abuse and in his organizing her husband's death. Bathsheba is a victim of David's depravity here. But then it was in the later birth of Solomon involving these two individuals through whom God would continue the line of the Messiah and it's in his arrival in Matthew here that testifies to this reality that Jesus has come to bring justice to victory for people like Bathsheba. Matthew 12, 18 says. He's come to bring justice to victory for sufferers in this world, for those oppressed in this world, for his people who suffer in this world. He's come proclaiming the good news that all those who mourn like Bathsheba shall be comforted and that all those who hunger and thirst for justice like Bathsheba will be satisfied in Matthew 5. He's come to make sure that all wrongs see justice, either by bearing, himself, bearing it himself on the cross or by punishing it himself at the end of the age. See, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus came to relieve sufferers. He came to bring comfort and, and, and his healing presence for those reeling from sexual brokenness. He came to bring peace and hope to those mourning the loss of loved ones because of the promise of resurrection and his being the first fruits of it himself. He came to give those who trust in him and who are suffering oppression the promise of a future of full justice and wholeness. He came to give resilience and assurance to all his own who are suffering in the midst of this fallen world. He came. He came first, the first time, his first advent. He came to enter our suffering, to taste our sadness, as the hymn says, to show solidarity with us and to sympathize with us in it. And he will come again one day to bring final and full relief from all the sufferings of this present age. We read about that day in Revelation 21.4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In that day where there's been brokenness, there will be wholeness. 
Where there's been death, there will be life. Where there's been pain, there will be pleasure. Where there's been tears and crying, there will be smiling faces and bellowing laughter. All because the former things will have passed away and the shalom of God's presence will fill this earth and fill our bodies so that all things are made new. Jesus has come for sufferers. He's come for us. He's come for you. And then lastly, Jesus came to retrieve all nations. He came to redeem sinners and relieve suffering for a church made up of all people, all nations. He came to bring forgiveness and wholeness and hope to the, the vast array of all the peoples of this earth. And this seems to be the theme that, that ties these four ladies all together in Matthew's genealogy. Is that the four of them either are or closely associated with Gentiles, the peoples, the nations, those who are not ethnically Jewish, but who belong to other ethno-linguistic peoples of the world. Tamar, most likely a Canaanite, when Judah was living among the Canaanites at the time, she came into the picture, he had her marry his partly Canaanite sons, and although it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, Jewish tradition views Tamar as having been a Canaanite. The off chance that she wasn't, she was at least closely associated. Rahab was definitely a, a Canaanite living in Jericho, and then she came to worship the Lord. Ruth was a Moabite who came to worship Yahweh. Bathsheba, she may have been ethnically Jewish, we don't know for sure, but, but she was married to Uriah, who is a Hittite. Uriah was a Gentile. He's the one Matthew names here, isn't he? All of the mothers of Jesus listed here, save Mary, are either Gentiles or Gentile adjacent. They came from or are associated with people from the nations, not the people of Israel, at least not ethnically so. Looking at this and reading it in light of how Matthew ends his gospel with this call to go and make disciples of all nations, it's obvious that Matthew is trying to show us something here. He's trying to show us that among the realities that Jesus came for sinners and sufferers is this all-important reality that Jesus came to retrieve for himself a people from all nations. He came to redeem and call to himself a people from every nation and tribe and tongue of the earth. It's a wonderful New Testament scholar, Richard Hayes, says of this. He says, in the genealogy, Matthew already hints at a major theme of his gospel. The story of Israel is open to the inclusion of Gentiles. He says these four women in the ancestry of the Messiah prefigured the mission to all nations, Matthew 8, 28, 19, by demonstrating that God has woven ethnic outsiders into the story from start to finish. They prefigure the mission to all nations that is announced in the gospel's closing chapter. In other words... The fact that Jesus came from Gentiles shows that he also came for Gentiles. And that includes, that includes those of us here this morning that are not ethnically Jewish. We get the gift of being brought into this family of Jesus Christ. I, I, know, I know that maybe that's, that reality is somewhat lost on us. We don't typically think of ourselves often as belonging to the nations and being outsiders because of, we've already been brought into the family. There's something appropriate in that. But as Paul puts it in, in Romans, we're, we're not naturally existing branches in this family tree. 
We, we ourselves, in and of ourselves, are naturally outsiders who have been grafted in. The fact that we get to belong to the church, the new humanity, the household of God, the family of Christ, is a gift. One that the New Testament continually reminds us, ethnic Gentiles, to be thankful for. 1 Peter 2.10 reminds Gentiles like us, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul calls those who are ethnically Gentiles to remember this. It's, it's important, he says, that we remember this in Ephesians 2. He writes, listen, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, remember, he says, that you were at the time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into the family. We've been given a people and a place to belong to all because of Christ. What's more? So that there are more Gentiles, other nations, additional peoples whom God still plans to call to himself in Christ, but have yet to hear. Revelation 7 shows the end. There will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered into Christ's kingdom who praise and worship him forevermore, but, but we have yet to see that day. And so as God's people, we still have this mission, this mission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, to go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. We bring the good news of Christ's grace and glory to all the peoples of the earth and to help all the peoples of this earth follow Jesus. This is why last week in our liturgy, we came up to receive cards with, with information about people groups, yet to have those among them who trust in Christ and treasure Christ and, and, and follow Christ so that we might take those cards home and be praying for the gospel to go forth in power among these peoples so that they might also enjoy the good news that Christ came to redeem sinners and relieve sufferers. This is why we're praying for the Lord to raise up three to five missionaries in this church to go and serve among peoples who have yet to know Christ. This is why, because Christ has come to retrieve the nations to himself. And he sent us out as the means through which he intends to do it in this age. So let me encourage you, if, if you haven't prayed for the, the peoples on those cards this past week, if you, if you just took that home and kind of absentmindedly misplaced it, start this week. It's not too late to start. If you did pray for the people on those cards, let me encourage you, just con continue to do so. If you sense the Lord prompting you to get further involved in taking his gospel to the nations, follow this prompting. I'd love to talk with you. The members of Missio Veritas would love to talk with you. There's so many opportunities to get involved with, even here in our own city, to bring the good news of Christ's gospel to all peoples, and all peoples need to hear this message. All people need to hear this message. Because Jesus came for sinners. He came to redeem us and forgive us and to give us true and lasting change. He came for sufferers. People in our city. People across this world are so deeply and despairingly suffering 
all without the hope that we have in Christ. They need hope. They need the knowledge we have that Christ has come to taste our sadness and that he will eventually come again to wipe it all away. People need to know that he came and will come again for the nations to call to himself a people from all peoples. And that in the end of the age, a church made up of all peoples will reign with him. Sinners freed from all guilt and sufferers relieved from all suffering forever and ever and ever. And this is what Matthew 1, the mothers of Jesus present therein, show us that Jesus came from sinners for sinners. He came from sufferers for sufferers. He came from Gentiles for Gentiles. What a Savior we have. What a Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to this table now, as we gather in here, that we would, that we would have something of a, a foretaste of that end-of-the-age reality when all sinners that you have called to yourself, all your people who have suffered so deeply in this present age, all peoples from a church made up of all peoples across the earth are going to be gathered in feasting and enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we come to the table, may we remember this reality. May we be encouraged by this reality, and may we be excited by this reality in anticipation for its one day coming. We pray that in the midst of it, that it would also give us strength to live in this already not age now with courage, and resilience, and hope, with hearts full of repentance, and comfort because of who Christ is for us, what he's done for us, and what he will do in that day. We pray all this in his name. Amen.